welcome to the Wanderlust Journal podcast, based upon great storytelling. We'll be sharing adventures, recommendations, and tips for the aspiring writer. I'm your host, Sarah Leamy. I am a wanderer since I was a teenager hitching across France. I usually travel alone with dogs and in various vehicles. I'm the author of Van Life, Bring a Chainsaw, and numerous others. And I have a master's degree in writing and publishing, so you are in good hands today. If you'd like to hear more, simply subscribe, stick around, and we'll take you around the world. Why, hello. In today's episode, we are talking about odd or other unique travel stories. This will be a theme I keep coming back to, hopefully. And today I wanted to start with, his name is Dave Shively, S-H-I-V-E-L-Y, Dave Shively. And the book that I'm going to be reading from is called The Pacific Alone, The Untold Story of Kayaking's Boldest Voyage. And I'm just going to go straight into it. July 26 to August 21st, 1987. Days 32 to 58. On day 32, just after his noon sun sighting, fresh trade winds start to blow. Gillett sits upright. His strokes regain purpose. He leans forward, reaching more with each stroke, trying to coax all available speed. Getting the life raft up to what he estimates at five knots, the hours melt away as the wind sustains. Finally, Gillette thinks as he catches a wave, reprieve from a death sentence. He launches the kite, flying it high for once, well above the windswept trows and peaks, catching even stronger pressures, sustained air blowing from the northeast. The trade winds blow through the night, and Gillette waits to the welcome sound of wind whistling through the lines running off the top of his radar reflector. After eight days of calm, punctuated by only fluky zephyrs and frustratingly contrary headwinds, he revels in a singular sight all around him, blue, foam-flecked waves surging towards Hawaii. These are the day he, d- days, he writes in his log, first after a productive morning spent pumping a fresh two and a half gallons of water, then with a north-northwest northeast wind and an afternoon of fast paddling that lasts through the evening. He keeps riding the conditions, not swapping the paddle and kite for his outriggers and sea anchors until midnight. The warm trades continue at 15 to 20 knots. Gillette grounds in the moment to commit the scene to memory. Joyously frothy water like royal blue champagne. Warm, clear, sparkling with highlights of indigo, violet and electric blue. Bolts of sunlight flashing through heaving swells like lightning. He's free from the plodding and purgatory. His stern lifts and he starts paddling furiously to catch the rolling face of a ten-foot wave. Then he quickly eases off. Not too much. He'll kill his speed in the trow, or if he accelerates too much, enter the back of the next wave. Weave through the hilly water like a skier working moguls. Each roll of surf is an extra fifty yards to his goal. Each wave caught is a leap ahead and his standard steps towards the island. He thinks of Katie, wishing she could see him in action, manoeuvring the craft in heavy, favouring seas as he had envisioned. She must be watching this from afar, tracking this insignificant uptick in distance made. <clears throat> the days blur in hundreds of caught waves. Gillette trailing a fishing line in water he imagines must be the home to the Mahi. A squall line appears behind him. The wall of dark clouds builds and passes over. The cooler wind, laced with light rain, begins to gust and whip the water. As fast as it appears, it's gone, leaving a calm, sunny, idyllic scene for him to catch his breath. He is hungry. He needs rest. But as the wind picks back up, he knows he needs to eke out miles while he can. 
and having the wind back, however, means the return of uncomfortable nights. He is immediately reminded of the shortcoming of his back-up tarp cockpit cover when his stabilised steeping kayak yaws on its sea anchors and the water floods into his cocoon. At least it's warmer, he tries to comfort himself. A piece of cake compared to the first few weeks. His partially dried-out sleeping bag grows bulkier again, turning back into a sponge. So I wanted to include that just because it's not one story that I generally come across. Most of the stories um, that I seem to find these days are either the van lifers, overlanders in the 4x4s or uh, motorcyclists. So that was David and I'll let me find his bio for you. Well, I couldn't find a bio, but I did find a description of the book to give you a little more information about what it is. So it's written by Dave Shavely, and he brings together this uh, remarkable story of um, Ed Gillett. Gillett or Gillett, I'm not sure. Um, anyways, in the summer of 1987, Ed Gillett achieved what no other person had accomplished before or since, a solo crossing from California to Hawaii by kayak. At the age of 36, he was an accomplished sailor and paddler and had navigated by sextant and he always knew his position within a few miles. Still, he underestimated the abuse his body would take from this relentless pounding swells of the Pacific and early into his voyage he was covered with saltwater sores and found he could no longer find a comfortable position for sitting or sleeping. It was a lot tougher than he'd imagined. Um, at last he reached Maui on his 63rd day, four days after his food had run out. And... David um, Shively brings this together really well, I think, through the language he uses. He uses the present tense so that we're very engaged in a day-to-day or moment-by-moment unfolding of what it was like for Ed. And he did this gripping narrative um, based exclusive with exclusive access to the logs as well as interviews with the legendary paddler himself. So that is the Pacific Alone, and it was the winner of uh, the 2019 National Outdoor Book Award for Outdoor Literature. So that's one uh, that's a good one to start us off with. Another one I want to talk to about is. Um, a Brit called Lois Price, and she was, uh, someone recommended I look to her, she's someone I've come across through the Overland Expo and the motorcycle riders that I'm around quite a bit, and um, in 2011 she set out to Iran, and her book is called Revolutionary Ride, On the Road in Search of the Real Iran. And so here's a little clip or an article from that. Let's see if I can find the beginning that I was going to go. Oh, here we go. So from Revolutionary Ride. Alongside me was an elderly, elderly Iranian woman dressed in the head-to-toe black, her eyes boring into me. I felt nervous under her gaze. This was the Iran I had feared, disapproval from a nation of hardline Islamists, suspicious of my infidel jaunt around their country on a form of transport that is outlawed for Iranian women. Eventually she jabbed at my shoulder. You, you have motor, yes? She repeated the question, this time accompanying it with the universal motion for riding a motorcycle, twisting the throttle, complete with engine revving noises. Vroom, vroom. You have motor, yes? It is you? I had a creeping fear that she was an undercover member of some much-feared morality police, but denial was futile. Everyone had seen my bike. There's no anonymity for a lone white female British motorcyclist in Iran. I fessed up. Um, yeah, that's me. I have motor. 
She grabbed my face and gave my cheek an enthusiastic smack as a huge smile erupted from her stern features. Very good, very good, she bellowed, hugging me into her folds. And then she was jumping up and down, slapping me on the back, squeezing my face and whooping with laughter. Her motorcycle actions became more animated, imitating the moves of a Daredevil speedway racer, black fabric billowing around her. Very good, room, room. And so I love that just for the... That sense of connection, that moment of connection where you're not quite sure what's going to what's gonna happen next. So this book, Revolutionary Ride, I haven't actually had the chance to read it, so I've been looking around. And Lois Price describes it in this way. My latest book, Revolutionary Ride, tells the story of my 3,000-mile solo motorcycle ride around Iran, which turned out to be the most enchanting and mind-altering journey of my life. The book was shortlisted for the 2018 Edward Stanford Travel Writing Award and named Book of the Year by National Geographic. And it was described as a joyful, moving and stereotype busting tale. So she used to work for the BBC. She's worked in the music industry. Um, She quit her office job to ride 20,000 miles from Alaska to the tip of South America on a small dirt bike. And she wrote about that in her book Lois on the Loose and that's that's one great book I think um I think that's worth one worth checking out for sure let's see if we can find another any other examples um I think we're gonna I think we're gonna jump from that actually onto another book completely different style book from a Brit his name is George Mahood And this book is called Free Country, A Penniless Adventure the Length of Britain. And Free Country features two young men, George and Ben, who plan to take a three-week, thousand-mile cycle trip, bicycle trip, through the English and Scottish countryside. The catch, though, is that they start the journey with only the clothes on their backsides, which is a pair of, or are, Union Jack boxer shorts. They have to depend on the kindness of generosity of strangers to move their journey forward. And so here's a nice beginning point when the journey really is just starting. So, From Free Country by George Mahood. After another hour walking, we reach the village of Morva. Morva is a tiny hamlet with an alleged population of 79. When we'd passed through, they were all in hiding. The few houses that we could see had their lights off and there were no cars in the driveway. We started to wonder whether cars and electricity had been discovered in Cornwall yet. The last house that we came across did show signs of life. There were lights on and a car in the driveway. We knocked on the door and a lady answered. She was in her mid-forties with a warm, welcoming face, frizzy hair and a baggy T-shirt. I'm really sorry, she said, before we even asking what we wanted. I've just finished milking the cows and I wasn't expecting visitors. Um, we're really sorry to bother you, I said, but we were wondering if you had any old bikes lying around that you were trying to get rid of. I don't think we have, she said, completely unfazed by our question. We got rid of us last month. We might have an old scooter in the garden. Seriously? A scooter would be amazing. Okay, what do you need it for? We're cycling to John O'Groats, said Ben, who then described our challenge to her. Oh, what an adventure, said the lady, whose name was Sue. Just give me a sec. I'll see if our neighbour has anything that they can give you. Helen, it's Sue, she said on the phone. I've got two boys with me who are heading to John O'Groats and they're after a couple of bikes. Do you have anything at your place? There was a long pause. Doesn't have to be a bike, she added. Anything with wheels. There was another pause. Yes, they both look barking. 
she said, laughing and looking at us both. Another long pause followed, but Sue's expression changed to suggest she was having some success. Brilliant, she said. Any chance Ross could run it over the field with a quad? Thanks, Helen. Talk to you later. Our mouths had both dropped open as we stood there expectantly on Sue's doorstep waiting to hear. Ross is our neighbour's son who lives across the field. He's going to bring over his old bike for you. It's very small and rusty and he doesn't know if the tyres have punctures, but it might be of use. We both grinned like lottery winners. He'll be over in a few minutes, said Sue. I'll go see what I can find. She reappeared, reappeared a few minutes later, wheeling a scooter and a tricycle. The tricycle was pink with a little basket on the front and was clearly intended for a two-year-old. I don't think you'll get to John O'Groats with either of these, but this one will get you as far as St Ives, she said, lifting up a black WWF scooter. The former World Wrestling Federation, that is, rather than the World Wildlife Fund. I mean, I don't think the latter makes scooters. Wowee, I said. Yes, I know people don't say wowee anymore, but I did. It just slipped out. I'm not proud of it. Ben was already testing out the tricycle, and it was clear that under the weight of an adult, it would be crushed within minutes. The other one, however, was a beast of a scooter. It had a wide skateboard-sized platform, Harley-Davidson-style handlebars, big foam wheels, and was emblazoned with pictures of greased-up wrestlers. It would have been the Rolls-Royce of scooters back in the day. It also had functioning brakes and a drinking bottle holder. Yes. So there you go. That's something completely different. I thought you might enjoy that. And it's a sweet story. It just keeps ticking along. And one of those, you know, a nice easy romp to go along. The last one for today is going to be by called Journey with a Baja Boro by Graham McIntosh. And this um, is when, let's see, when Graham takes another expedition, his book before this was called Into a Desert Place. But on this one, he hikes a thousand miles from the US border south to Loretto to celebrate the 300th anniversary of the founding of the Loretto mission, which is about two hours from where I am right now. And it was the first mission, permanent mission of the Californias. And in this work, we get the logistical and the emotional and the historical aspects of what it's like to walk along trails, dirt roads, and sometimes on the main highway with his pack burrow, his donkey, Mission, traversing scorching desert, frigid pine-covered mountains, and visiting various mission sites along the way. And so I wanted to give you another little something. I doubt many of us have um, either tried cycling across uh, England and Scotland in a pair of boxer shorts or carried our uh, things on a donkey through Baja, California. So this seemed to fit the odd travel stories. So this is from the chapter Walking in the Rock Garden of the Lord. I noticed the desert was crawling with bugs, ants, black stink bugs, and amazing numbers of delicate-looking black-and-white daddy long leg spiders. And no matter how many times I brushed them off, there always seemed to be at least two or three in the tent. They seemed they were heralds of spraying and warmer climes and warnings to be much more watchful for rattlers. Mission was tired. He sank down and laid still for a while. I was disappointed to see that his back was looking worse. There were a couple of places near the dark stripe across his shoulders where the hair was worn away and his skin beneath was pink and tender. I rubbed his neck and patted his ribs while I told him how much I appreciated him. I was looking forward to a nice 
load lightning meal with a can of something hot and spicy and plenty of good veggies, but then black clouds came rolling in with a strong suggestion of rain. I felt a couple of drops, so I began rushing around getting everything covered and put away. I brought in some turkey slices and bread and oranges and beer, and that was dinner. Ironically, an hour later, the sky was perfectly clear again. However, all the preparation paid off when it started raining the next morning. It rained on and off the whole day. I was glad to be well concealed, especially when I heard a couple of vehicles stopping at the pullover, followed by the slamming of doors and seriously loud Spanish conversation. For several minutes, I willed Mission not to unleash his resounding bray. Even after the vehicles left, I needed to check on my territory to be sure everyone had gone. I stood by the road for several minutes. Another vehicle approached from the south, its lights on in the drizzle. Dressed in grey and green, I stood still, camouflaged, just another vertical shape. The driver never turned his head. If he had, he would have had trouble distinguishing a person from the plethora of barrel cacti and juvenile cereals and cardons among the boulders. The following day, after the morning drying out, we left at about 11.20am. My right little toe obstinately refused to heal and I was walking with a limp. However, the cracks on my hands were mercifully fewer and less deep. I had started using the nail polish Bonnie had given me and the doctor's hand cream, hoping to finally conquer that difficulty. The changeable weather was causing an unexpected problem. Often the day would start out grey and dreary and brighten later to the point where I'd be quickly sunburned. A pair of tender red ears and the appearance of another coleslaw on my lip warned me to keep on my floppy sun hat and to not neglect sunscreen and lip balm. Given the weather and the conditions, I reluctantly decided to bypass the next mission. If we had come down the mission trail as intended from Santa Maria towards the coast, it would have been straightforward and sensible to follow the roads and trails through Arastras and Valle Calamuje, visiting the mission site on our way back to the detour. But now the journey would involve a a major in-and-out detour. All the ground along here was just sodden and deep clay and really messy. If you walk through it, your boots and hooves are just caked. There are lots of pools again, so I'm kind of thinking I'd rather not go 15 or 20 miles, often following and crossing over a stream, up the canyon, especially with more rain threatening. Mission is having a bad back problem and nothing much to see here anyway. So I wanted to include him. I love Graham. I've met him in person a few times and he is incredibly well read he researches his books there's so much history and there's so much of the the botany and the weather and you don't just get the travel story of I did this I did this there's a depth to it there's such a depth to it and a process and a literal internal and external journey so those are the ones I'm going to be doing for today It was Pacific Alone kayaking from California to Hawaii, a little bit of Lois Price and her motorcycle rides, George Mahood and his friend Ben and their walking cycling adventure across England up to John O'Groats. And then finally, um, Graham McIntosh with the the Baha Buru book. So all those notes will be in the bottom. I don't have any events to plug today. We're just going to keep it pretty short and sweet. And the next one, um, I think we're going to be doing an episode. Yeah, yes, I've got I've got some ideas. I The one thing I love about um, doing these podcasts is what comes up in my research. And so we are going to do an episode. It might be the next one or the one after that, because with a focus on um, 
this question that I just read recently was, in essence, what is travel about without the appreciation of diversity? And so given that uh, today my writers were all white, um, apart from Lois, well, they were all white, um, but white British and white straight white people. Um, and so I'm going to start doing a better job and focus and include more BIPOC travels, travelers. And you might have noticed and you might not, but generally these podcasts and the Wanderlust Journal website has at least 60% of the focus on female travelers. Um, I didn't do so well today. Well, no, not so, not today. But so next one, I want to do 20 female travel bloggers and they are of color. And I just want to be um, more conscientious because, you know, we all have uh, different lived experiences and there's it, it's really not that hard for me to notice and find a person of color writing about travel or teaching overseas or living overseas. So with all of this work out there and now with social media, it's a lot easier for me to find such people. And there is one couple that I started looking up and reading and following and their tag, just I'm not going to tell you more until we go into it next week, but their tag is at the Brown Van Life. So there's something for you to look up. Anyways, thanks for joining me today. This was recorded from Baja, California, Mexico in 2023, and I will talk to you soon. Have a great afternoon. If you'd like to find out more about either Wanderlust Journal or myself and my books, you'll find the links in the episode notes below. That's saralimi.com and wanderlust-journal.com. It's all completely free. If you're interested in supporting the Wanderlust Journal and keeping it free for everyone who wants to publish, read or hear these travel stories, there is also a link to the Buy Me A Coffee page below.